Chapter 7 of the Story of a Common Soldier of Army Life in the Civil War, 1861-1865. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sue Anderson. The Story of a Common Soldier of Army Life in the Civil War, 1861 1865 by Leander Stillwell Chapter 7 Bolivar, July, August, and September, 1862 On July 17th, our brigade, then under the command of General L. F. Ross, left Jackson for Bolivar, Tennessee, a town about 28 miles southwest of Jackson, on what was then called the Mississippi Central Railroad. Here I will observe that the sketch of the regiment before mentioned in the Illinois Adjutant General's reports is wrong as to the date of our departure from Jackson. It is inferable from the statement in the reports that the time was June 17th, which really was the date of our arrival there from Bethel. We started from Jackson at about four o'clock in the morning, but marched only about eight miles when we were brought to an abrupt halt caused by the breaking down under the weight of a cannon and its carriage of an ancient tennessee bridge over a little stream the nature of the crossing was such that the bridge simply had to be rebuilt and made strong enough to sustain the artillery and army wagons and it took the balance of the day to do it we therefore bivouacked at the point where we stopped until the next morning soon after the halt a hard rain began falling and lasted all afternoon. We had no shelter, and just had to take it and let it rain. But it was the middle of the summer, the weather was hot, and the boys stood around, some crowing like chickens and others quacking like ducks, and really seemed to rather enjoy the situation. About the only drawback resulting from our being caught out in the summer rains was the fact that the water would rust our muskets, in our time we were required to keep all their metal parts, except the butt-plate, as bright and shining as new silver dollars. I have put in many an hour working on my gun with an old rag and powdered dirt, and a corn-cob or a pine-stick, polishing the barrel, the bands, lock-plate, and trigger-guard, until they were fit to pass inspection. The inside of the barrel we would keep clean by the use of a greased wiper, and plenty of hot water. In doing this, we would ordinarily, with our screwdrivers, take the gun to pieces and remove from the stock all metallic parts. I never had any head for machinery of any kind, but from sheer necessity did acquire enough of the faculty to take apart and put together an army musket. And that is about the full extent of my ability in that line. We soon learned to take care of our pieces in a rain by thoroughly greasing them with a piece of bacon, which would largely prevent rust from striking in. We resumed our march to Bolivar early in the morning of the 18th. Our route was practically parallel with the railroad, crossing it occasionally. At one of these crossings, late in the afternoon, and when only five or six miles from Bolivar, I straggled again and took to the railroad. I soon fell in with three Company C boys who had done likewise. We concluded we would endeavor to get a country supper, 
and with that in view, an hour or so before sundown, went to a nice-looking farmhouse not far from the railroad, and made our wants known to the occupants. We had selected for our spokesman the oldest of our bunch, a soldier perhaps twenty-five years old named Alec Cope. He was something over six feet tall and about as gaunt as a sandhill crane. He was barefooted, and his feet, in color and general appearance, looked a good deal like the flappers of an alligator. His entire garb on this occasion consisted of an old wool hat and his government shirt and drawers. The latter garment, like the cutty sark of which Nanny in Tamashander, in longitude, was sorely scanty, coming only a little below his knees, and both habiliments would have been much improved by a thorough washing. But in the duty assigned him he acquitted himself well with the people of the house, and they very cheerfully said they would prepare us a supper. They seemingly were well-to-do, as several colored men and women were about the premises, who, of course, were slaves. Soon were audible the death squawks of chickens in the barnyard, which we heard with much satisfaction. In due time supper was announced, and we seated ourselves at the table. And what a banquet we had! Fried chicken, nice hot biscuits, butter, buttermilk, honey, think of that, preserved peaches, fresh cucumber pickles, and so forth. And a colored house girl moved back and forth behind us, keeping off the flies with a big peacock feather brush. Alec Cope sat opposite me, and when the girl was performing that office for him, the situation looked so intensely ludicrous that I wanted to scream. Supper over, we paid the bill, which was quite reasonable, and went on our way rejoicing, and reached Bolivar soon after dark, about the same time the regiment did. But it will now be set down that this was the last occasion that I straggled on a march. A day or so after arriving at Bolivar, the word came to me in some way, I think from Enoch Wallace, that our first lieutenant, Dan Keeley, had spoken disapprovingly of my conduct in that regard. He was a young man about twenty-five years old, of education and refinement, and all things considered the best company officer we had. I was much attached to him, and I know that he liked me. Well, I learned that he had said, in substance, that a non-commissioned officer should set a good example to the men in all things, and that he hadn't expected of Stillwell that he would desert the ranks on a march. That settled the matter. My conduct had simply been thoughtless, without any shirking intentions, but I then realized that it was wrong, and, as already stated, straggled no more. We went into camp at Bolivar, a little south of the town, in a grove of scattered big oak trees. A few days after our arrival, a good-sized body of Confederate cavalry, under the command of General Frank C. Armstrong, moved up from the south and began operating near Bolivar and vicinity. Our force there was comparatively small, and, according to history, we were, for a time, in considerable danger of being gobbled up but of that we common soldiers knew nothing. Large details were at once put to work throwing up breastworks, while the men not on that duty were kept in line of battle, or with their guns in stack on the line, and strictly cautioned to remain close at hand 
and ready to fall in at the tap of a drum. This state of things continued for some days. Then the trouble would seemingly blow over, and later would break out again. While we were thus on the ragged edge, and expecting a battle almost any hour, a little incident occurred which somehow made on me a deep and peculiar impression. To explain it fully, I must go back to our first days at Pittsburgh Landing. A day or two after our arrival there, Lieutenant Keeley said to me that the regimental color guard, to consist of a sergeant and eight corporals, was being formed, that Company D had been called on for a corporal for that duty, and that I should report to Major Orr for instructions. Naturally, I felt quite proud over this, and forthwith reported to the Major at his tent and stated my business. He looked at me in silence and closely for a few seconds, and then remarked, in substance, that I could go to my quarters and, if needed, would be notified later. This puzzled me somewhat, but I supposed it would come out all right in due time. There was a corporal in our company to whom I will give a fictitious name and call him Sam Cobb. He was a big, fine-looking fellow, and somewhere between twenty-five and thirty years old. And an hour or two after my dismissal by Major Orr, I heard Sam loudly proclaiming, with many fierce oaths, to a little group of Company D boys that he had been promoted, that he was a color corporal by... Dash. This announcement was accompanied by sundry vociferous statements in regard to Major Orr knowing exactly the kind of men to get to guard the colors of the regiment in time of battle, and so on and so on. I heard all this with mortification and bitterness of spirit. The reason now dawned on me why I had been rejected. I was only a boy, rather small for my age, and at this time feeble in appearance. Major Orr, quite properly, wanted strong, stalwart, fine-looking men for the color guard. A little reflection convinced me that he was right, and could not be blamed for his action. But he found out later, in this particular case at least, that something more than a fine appearance was required to make a soldier. Only two or three days after Sam's promotion came the Battle of Shiloh, and at the very first volley the regiment received, he threw down his gun and ran like a whipped curve. The straps and buckles of his cartridge box were new and stiff, so he didn't take the time to release them in the ordinary way, but whipped out his jackknife and cut them as he ran. I did not see this personally, but was told it by boys who did. We saw no more of Sam until after the battle, when he sneaked into camp with a fantastic story of getting separated from the regiment in a fallback movement that he then joined another, fought both days, and performed prodigies of valor. But there were too many that saw the manner of his alleged separation for his story ever to be believed. I will now return to the Bolivar incident. While the Confederates were operating in the vicinity of this place, as above mentioned, the fall-in call was sounded one evening after dark, and the regiment promptly formed in line on the parade ground. We remained there an hour or so, when finally the command was given to stack arms, 
and the men were dismissed with orders to hold themselves in readiness to form in line on the parade grounds at a moment's warning. As I was walking back to our company quarters, Sam Cobb stepped up to me and took me to one side, under the shadow of a tall oak tree. It was a bright moonlight night, with some big fleecy clouds in the sky. Stillwell asked Sam, "'Do you think we are going to have a fight?' "'I don't know, Sam,' I answered, "'but it looks very much like it. "'I reckon General Ross is not going out to hunt a fight. "'He prefers to stay here, protect the government stores, "'and fight on the defensive. "'If our cavalry can stand the Rebs off, "'then maybe they will let us alone. "'But if our cavalry are driven in, then look out.' "'Sam held his head down and said nothing.' As above stated, he was a grown man, and I was only a boy, but the thing that was troubling him was apparent from his demeanor, and I felt sorry for him. I laid a hand kindly on his shoulder and said, "'And Sam, if we should have a fight, now try, old fellow, and do better than you did before.' He looked up quickly. At that instant the moon passed from behind a big cloud and shone through a rift in the branches of the tree, full in his face, which was as pale as death, and he said in a broken voice, Stillwell, I'll run, I just know I'll run, by God I can't help it. I deeply pitied the poor fellow, and talked to him a few minutes in the kindest manner possible trying to reason him out of that sort of a feeling. But his case was hopeless. He was a genial, kind-hearted man, but simply a constitutional coward, and he doubtless told the truth when he said he couldn't help it. In the very next fight we were in, he verified his prediction. I may say something about that further on. Since leaving Camp Carrollton, Company D had lost two sergeants, one by death from sickness, the other by discharge for disability. So while we were at Bolivar, these vacancies were filled by appointments made by Major Orr, who was then commanding the regiment. In accordance with the custom in such matters, the appointments were announced in orders which were read on dress parade. As I now write, it is a little over fifty-four years since this event took place, but even now my heart beats faster as the fact is recalled that, as the adjutant read the list, there came the name, Corporal Leander Stillwell, Company D, to be 4th Sergeant. In the early part of August 1862, while our regiment was at Bolivar, I cast my first vote, which was an illegal one, as then I was not quite 19 years old. The circumstances connected with my voting are not lengthy, so the story will be told. In the fall of 1861, the voters of the state of Illinois elected delegates to a constitutional convention to frame and submit to the people a new constitution. A majority of the delegates so elected were Democrats, so they prepared a constitution in accordance with their political views. It therefore became a party measure the Democrats supporting and the Republicans opposing it. By virtue of some legal enactment, all Illinois soldiers in the field who were lawful voters were authorized to vote on the question of the adoption of the proposed Constitution. And so, on the day before indicated, 
the election for this purpose was held in our regiment. An election board was duly appointed, consisting of commissioned officers of the regiment. They fixed up under a big tree some hardtack boxes to serve for a table, and the proceedings began. I had no intention of voting, as I knew I had not the legal right. But Enoch Wallace came to me and suggested that I go up and vote. When I said I was not old enough, he simply laughed and took me by the arm and marched me to the voting place. The manner of voting was by word of mouth. The soldier gave his name and stated that he was for or against the Constitution, as the case might be, and his vote was recorded. I voted against and started away, no questions being asked me as to my age, but before getting out of hearing I heard one of the boards say, somewhat sotto voce, that's a mighty young-looking voter. Captain Ilry of Company C, also on the board, responded carelessly in the same tone, oh well, it's all right, he's a damn good soldier. That remark puffed me away up and almost made me feel as if I had grown maybe three feet or more in as many seconds, and needed only a fierce mustache to be a match for one of Napoleon's old guard. And my vote was not the same as Ilry's either, as he was a Democrat and supporting the new Constitution. When the regiment was recruited, it was Democratic by a large majority, but under the enlightening experiences of the war it had become Republican, and out of a total vote of about 250, it gave a majority against the new constitution of 25. The final result was that the proposed constitution was beaten by the home vote alone, which gave something over 16,000 majority against it. Consequently, the soldier vote, although heavily against the measure, cut no figure, as it was not needed, and my illegal exercise of the right of suffrage did neither good nor harm, and the incident has long since been barred by the statute of limitations. During the latter part of July and throughout August and September, things were lively and exciting at Bolivar, and in that region generally. There was a sort of feeling of trouble in the air most of the time. General Grant was in command in this military district, and he has stated in his memoirs that the most anxious period of the war to him was practically during the time above stated. But we common soldiers were not troubled with any such feeling. We were devoid of all responsibility except simply to look out for and take care of ourselves and do our duty to the best of our ability. And speaking for myself, I will say that this condition was one that was very full of comfort. We had no planning nor thinking to do, and the world could just wag as it willed. End of chapter 7